go and find a seat. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good. It's good. Good to see you guys. Hey, my name's Trent Elliott, and it's great to see you guys. Welcome to Salt Company, especially if you're new. We're super glad that you are here. If we haven't met yet, I'm director of Salt Company. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great Thursday night. So if you've joined us these past few weeks, then you know that we are in the middle of our relationship series. And one of the kind of overarching points of the relationship series has been this idea that scripture shows us that, that we were created for relationship with God and we were created for relationship with others, right? We were created for relationship, but sin has entered this world and it has broken those relationships. And so this series, we've been looking to the Bible to say, okay, how do we walk into these relationships in a broken world and pursue reconciliation? And so... This, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about friendship. Last week, we talked about dating. And tonight, we are talking about sex. That's right, we're having the sex talk. Who's excited? I knew, I knew. That's right. I knew there was gonna be one guy that was like, yeah, let's go. So I don't know. Okay, raise your hand. No, I'm not gonna, don't worry here. If you've, if, uh, no, no. If, so. I said sex talk. Raise your hand if, like, growing up, you remember distinctly either at home or at school, like, a sex talk, like someone having the sex talk. Okay, right? So maybe some good stories to exchange after service. But let me tell you, let me tell you about my experience, okay? So, again, not going into too much detail here, but, guys, I, so, uh, for, for me, I remember sixth grade at school, we was like, we had like the talk. And it's like, you know, the older kids always talk about, yeah, the talk, right? And so they brought us into this classroom, uh, our entire grade, went to small school, it could fit the entire grade into one classroom. And they're like, okay, you know, you know, this has been coming, we're gonna have the sex talk. And uh, basically there's one rule. You have to take this seriously and you can't laugh. And if you laugh, we're gonna kick you out. That's a terrible way to set up Right, a class for middle schoolers, is it not, right? And so like, I am, like, it, I probably would have been fine if they didn't say that, but they said that and like, I'm like, ah, no, I can't laugh. Like I, like, I can't laugh and like, when someone says don't laugh, you like wanna laugh more, right? And so I was like biting my tongue this whole time. Me and my buddy next to me is like, they're, they're starting the talk, right? And I was doing pretty good. They're saying the words. I'm like, oh, like, hold on, like, don't laugh. And then they throw up the diagram of the male anatomy and I just lose it. Just me and my buddy, just... It's too funny. You told us not to laugh, and it's so. Uh, yeah, we got a mean looking at. They brought us into the hall, uh, into the hallway, and I didn't get I didn't get the talk, I guess, in that in middle school. There, so not at least in that class. So they literally kicked us out. So that was like my experience, and yeah, uh, pretty immature apparently. So hopefully I've matured a little bit since then, and uh, just so you won't, I won't be showing any diagrams tonight. But. Guys, I do think that this is an extremely important conversation to have. Especially extremely important conversation to have in our culture, right? And it's something that's on our minds, something that maybe has deep wounds in that area, something that we need to talk about. And so I wanna be, start off by being super upfront and giving my hopes for tonight. Here are my hopes for tonight. I have three hopes for this conversation. My first hope is that we gain a better understanding of God's design for sex. So our world has a lot to say about sex and how we should engage with it, but I wanna know what does God have to say about it? My second hope is that we can better grasp the reality of the consequences of pursuing sex outside of God's design for it. Our culture says it's not that big of a deal. 
but I want to understand the, 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 uh, the consequences of pursuing sex outside of God's design. Sexual sin has consequences, and I hope to a healthy degree that we can begin to feel the weight of those consequences. And my third hope is this. I know that this conversation can create a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, bring up moments of regret. And I hope that we leave tonight with a better understanding of the forgiveness and the grace that we have received in Jesus. See, no one walks in here free from sexual sin. I certainly don't. We are all in desperate need of Jesus for the washing of our sin. And I hope you leave tonight blown away by the grace that we receive in Jesus. Listen, the Lord might convict you tonight, right? He might bring up hidden sin tonight, but he's not looking to shame you. He wants to heal you. He wants you to walk out of these doors tonight feeling lighter than a feather because of the grace we've received in Jesus. So those are my hopes for tonight. So let's open up our Bibles. You can follow along on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter six. And just to give you a little bit of context, 1 Corinthians is a book written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city um, in modern day Greece. It was in the Roman Empire. And what you need to know about the city of Corinth is that, is that it was a sex crazed culture. Right? They, they had a lot of wealth. They were big into uh, worship of idols and they were obsessed with sex. And specifically, this text will tell us that prostitution was especially present and that some, even in the church that Paul is writing to, were involved with prostitutes. And so Corinth, it's a party town. It's Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, right? And, and Paul had helped start a church in Corinth, believers in Corinth, and now he's writing back to these Christians who are trying to follow Jesus in this culture, who are being influenced by this culture, and, and, he's, and he's writing to them. And so that's where we pick up. And we're gonna see in verse 12 that Paul begins to quote some popular sayings during that time about sex that were influencing the Corinthians. Okay, he's going to uh, quote popular sayings and he's going to give a response to each. So verse 12, here's the first quote. He says, everything is permissible for me. That's what you say. But I say, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And we're gonna pause here, we'll keep going in a minute. So Paul starts off his section of this letter by quoting these popular sayings of the time about sex, and it gives us insight into what they believed in that culture and in that city about sex. And so the first one, he says, everything is permissible for me. That's what they were saying. You guys say this, everything's permissible. This is basically an argument of personal freedom. Right? It's, saying, it's saying, hey, if it's legal, I'm free to do it. Right? It's my body. I can do whatever I want to. Everything is permissible. I can, I can do it if I, if I want. Right? That's the first thing that they're saying. And they say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is another thing saying they were saying. They were basically saying, sex is just like food. It's like an appetite. Right? When you're hungry, what do you do? You go and meet that appetite. You eat food. Right? So similarly, like if you have sexual desire, you should be free to go meet that sexual desire. It's just like food. It's a natural human desire. It's really not that big of a deal. So these were a couple of sayings going around in the time that, that Paul is addressing. And what the people of Corinth and the culture around them uh, were, were trying to do or what we're understanding about sex is that it, basically these sayings were downplaying the significance of sex, right? 
They're downplaying the significance of sex. They're, they were saying, Paul, like, hey, what's the big deal? Like, it's, 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 it's fine. It's sex. It's a basic human need. Why are we making it? Why is the church, why are you Christians making it a bigger deal than it needs to be? And so that's what's going on in Corinth. What I think is interesting is that I think our culture is actually extremely similar to Corinth. I think this is actually the same exact message about sex that our culture has today. We too have sayings that kind of downplay the significance of sex. Say, hey, it's, to us, it's not that big of a, steal, of a deal to us Americans, right? Right, so we have all these sayings, right? Like friends with benefits, you know, it's casual. It's not a big deal. We're just friends, you know, it's, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. One night stand, you know, it's one time, commitment's not a big deal, don't worry about it, right? People are beginning to refer to the number of sexual partners by a number, body count, right? Literally taking a human and saying, hey, it's not a big deal, it's just a number, right? It's, it's not that significant. Uh, Google helped me with, that, with a few others. Just a roll in the hay, anyone ever heard that one? <laughs> that feels like an old grandma one. I, I, I thought I was like, hey, we're Iowans. That, I feel like we'd heard of that. Knocking boots, okay. Lots of sayings out there, lots of sayings. Guys, and what are these, what are these sayings meant to do? to downplay the significance of sex, right? It's just a basic human need, a basic human desire. We all have it. No need to make a bigger deal than it is. Right? This is the message that they were surrounded by. This is the message we're surrounded by constantly in movies and on social media and advertisements. We too live in a sex-crazed culture that says it's just sex. It's not that big of a deal. Why are you Christians making such a big deal out of it? And Paul's point in response to each of these sayings, is saying, no, actually, it really is a big deal. You say it's not a big deal, but listen, not everything is beneficial. He's saying just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? You can actually get hurt here and you can hurt others. You say it's not a big deal, but sexual sin actually has the power to master you and I won't be mastered by anything. It enslaves you. It promises you a lot, but it leaves you completely empty and wanting more. You say sex is just as simple as an appetite, but I promise you it's way more significant than that. He makes it clear. He says the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Right, in a world that says it doesn't matter what you do with your body, Paul makes the clear biblical distinction about what God has to say. He says it does matter what you do with your body. So here's the next question he's going to address. Why? Why is it such a big deal what we do with our, our, our bodies? Why is sex so significant? Look at 13 again with me. I'm going to read in the middle there through 20. It says, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says, the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. 
So why is sex a big deal? Well, Paul gives us two big reasons why it's a big deal, and they both have to do with this idea of union, okay, of two becoming one, union. We see the reason of sexual union in marriage between man and woman, and we see the reason of union with Christ. So let's look at both of those. Starting with sexual union in marriage, Paul addresses exactly why it is such a big deal they were engaging in prostitution and sexual immorality. Verse 16 says, Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. What does that mean, becoming one body, becoming one flesh? Well, Paul cites back to Genesis 2.24 here. That's why it's bolded in your Bibles. It's referring back to Genesis 2.24 in the very beginnings of our Bibles where God creates man, right? He creates man. He says it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates woman. And he created them to be united together. And that's why it says, and this is why, just 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. This is the command. He gives them the command to be fruitful, to multiply, to have a lot of babies, right? He looks at all that he has made. This is pre-fall. And he says, it was very good. This is part of God's design. It's here in the first pages of our Bibles that we learn about God's good design for sex. And that God's good design for sex is very clearly for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And notice a few things about that. First of all, he says it is good. Right? He says it's good. He says it's very good. Let's not make any mistakes, right? We believe sex to be a good gift. I don't know what your, what your background is, but maybe you grew up to, uh, growing to, going to church and that's not the message you heard about sex, right? Whenever you heard about sex, it was like, no, it's, it's so dirty, right? It's, it's, it's inherently bad. Don't ever do any of that ever, ever, right? Maybe that's the, the message that you heard of, with shame and guilt and never thinking about sex. It's bad, right? That's not the message of the Bible. He says it is good, right? It's a good thing in the right context. It is a very good thing in the right context, in the way that God designed it. And the reason that God says it's for one man and one woman is because sex is not purely a physical act. It's not solely a physical act, but it's a uniting act that brings together one man and one woman in a profound way so that they become one flesh, right? Which is a beautiful thing to be united with someone in that deep, profound way if you're committed to them for a lifetime in marriage, right? This is the type of union that takes place in marriage and in sex. And the thing about this union is that it's not only physical, but it's so deep, two becoming one flesh, that it is also emotional. And it's also deeply spiritual. There's so much more going on here. It's the uniting of two beings. So here's an illustration for you. So earlier Paul said that, that, uh, that sex is not like your food appetite, right? Well, I'm gonna say union between man and woman is kind of like food. So let me explain. When we eat food, what are like the primary things like we're focused on? Mostly the taste, right? Mostly we're taste. Like, that, like, that's, the, like that's pretty much all I care about. It's like, does it taste good? Does it not? Like that's what I care about. Maybe some of us are like, okay, I, like, I try to generally eat healthy. I wanna know what's in it, right? Like I'm a little bit concerned about that. But for the most part, like when I'm just down in a tub of ice cream, like I'm not really thinking about how it's affecting me, right? Well, what if I said, 
that when you eat that food, that there is actually a greater union going on between you and that food than you may think. So maybe you've heard the statement before, you are what you eat. And in one sense, like, no, I don't believe like what you eat defines like your identity. But in a literal sense, that is actually kind of true, right? Because that, that, that when we eat food, it is actually more than just taste going on, right? The nutrients from that food provide the foundation for every single cell in our body that makes up our bones and our skin and our lungs, right? And, and the old cells, I had to Google this part. I don't, I don't really know biology. The old cells are constantly dying, right? Every day, every month, the old cells are dying. They're being replaced by new cells. And those new cells rely on the nutrients of that food that we are putting in our body to succeed, right? The health of those, those cells is dependent on the nutrients of the food. So in one sense, when we put food into our bodies and, and, it, and it becomes into those healthy cells, like we're actually are uniting with that food in a way that is greater and deeper than we maybe first thought, right? It's kind of becoming us in one sense. And the same is true for sex. That this concept of union between two people by the joining of them in a physical way is actually much deeper than we originally thought. See, it's not just a physical act like they were saying. It's not just, it's just two people meeting a, a humanly desire. It's much more than that. It's not purely physical, but it's emotional, it's spiritual. It's an act of the bonding of two individual two individuals in such a deep way that it's not meant to be broken. It's not meant to be separated. Which is why Paul takes a stand here and he's warning them not to engage in sexual immorality, especially by having sex with prostitutes. Because what you are doing is a way bigger deal than you think it is. You're joining two souls together in a deep and intimate and emotional and spiritual way, in a way that is not to meant to be broken, but you're ripping them apart. You're joining and then you're ripping apart. This is not the way that it was created to be. And it leads to hurt and it leads to shame and to guilt and to regret because this good gift was meant to be enjoyed by two individuals in a permanent way. It's not just an appetite. It's not just a casual thing, as they say, as our world say. It's a deeply good but binding thing. So that's one reason that Paul gives to why it's not insignificant. It's significant. But there's another type of union that believers in Jesus have that Paul talks about, and that is union with Christ. Look back at verse 15. It's kind of scattered throughout this passage. It says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should, I, so should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Verse 17, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? So what's going on here? The truth is when we accept Jesus as Lord of our lives, there's another type of union that goes on, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and that in that we experience union with Christ. Right? Just as we're united with food, just as we're united in marriage, we begin to experience a union with Christ in profound ways. 
We're united with him. He takes our sin and we take his righteousness. He takes our death and we are raised with him in new life. And our bodies, because they've been removed of sin, now have a space where the Holy Spirit can come to live inside of us in a real way and to shine our light to the world. Because this is an astounding and amazing reality if we dwell on it, if we think about it. An amazing reality for the believer. And Paul recognizes this as a result. If this is true, that we've been united with Christ, our bodies are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, let's glorify God with our bodies. Right? How much more should those of us who have been united with Christ in this way be concerned with the other things in life that we are uniting ourselves with? All other idols, but especially sex, which is another uniting thing. It's a good gift in the right context of marriage. So he gives this argument for sex, but let's talk about something else. Let's talk about pornography. Because I think that we do the same thing in how we think about pornography as we do sex. We think, we try to convince ourselves, hey, what's, like, what's the big deal? We do the same thing that the Corinthians were doing. What's the big deal? It's not hurting anyone else, right? At least, at least I'm not uniting myself with them in that way. And to that, I would say, I think, yes, we are, actually. At least to some degree, maybe more than we think. Right? They may be on the other side of a screen, but you are seeing things and you are experiencing things with that person that is meant to be experienced only between a husband and a wife. It might seem like a seemingly insignificant, normalized thing, but I promise you it is hurting you. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, right? It changes how you view people, viewing them not as people, but as objects to gratify us. It messes with your brain and rewires how we can experience intimacy. It messes with you spiritually, like a thrill in the moment, but instant feelings of deep shame and guilt and regret that follow. And Paul says it's a sin against your own body. But not only that, it's a sin against someone else's body too. Guys, this is maybe the biggest tragedy of all. That those young men and women on the other side of those screens, in our pockets, we forget that those are people. People made in the image of God, image bearers, right? People who God has made, people who have, been, have been, become so lost in life that, that they have come to believe that whatever they, that, they, that they can find what they're searching for by taking off their clothes and degrading themselves in the worst ways and displaying that for the world to see. And some of them don't even have a choice to be there. They've been forced to be there. They've been trafficked to be there. Guys, this is sad. If we see what's happening, the significance of what's happening, this is a tragedy. Sexual sin is a big deal. It's not without consequences. It has the power to destroy 
the power to enslave. And it's doing just that in so many places in our world, in our country, on our campuses, and in this room. Christians aren't immune from sexual sin. We just might be better at hiding it. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, Paul gives us a really short and simple answer, right? Verse 18. So flee sexual immorality. He says, flee, get away from it. Don't just stand there. Like it's going to get you. Get away from it. You guys think about that. We don't really use the word flee very often, but what does it mean to flee? It doesn't mean just like casually stroll away, right? It, doesn't, it means to get away from it, to run, to recognize there's danger and say, I'm going to get away, to flee. Guys, we should flee like we flee when we're being attacked by a swarm of wasps, right? It's like, if you're being attacked by a swarm of wasps, you ever seen anyone just like, oh no, like they're after me, you know? No, you're like, you're getting away and you're getting them off you. And you look like an idiot, like I just looked. But it's because you, you just are trying to get away from it. You're, gonna, you're willing to do whatever you can because you see it's dangerous. You don't want to get stung. But in reality, we're often more like kids playing chase out at recess, where it's like, hey, like, stop running after me, you know, stop it. And then it's like, are you running after me? Like, are you running after me? Like, you, you don't, you actually want to be chased. But call, Paul calls us to flee, to get away from it. So how do we flee sexual sin, knowing the consequences? I got three things for us, three steps. First of all is to take radical steps of action. So the team talked about this one a little bit last week. But if you want to find victory over sexual sin, it's going to require radical steps of action. Guys, sexual sin is a unique sin because it is binding. So we are not going to get away from it if we don't take radical steps of action, if we don't run from it, right? Jesus himself says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, right? Now, he doesn't mean to literally cut off your hand, but what is he saying? He's saying, do whatever it takes to get away from the sin because that's how deadly serious it is. So what do we do? What are some radical steps? Here's a few quick ideas. Guys, if you are in a battle with pornography addiction, you have to figure out what to do with this, right? Because here's the thing about a phone. It's really hard to flee from something that's in your pocket, isn't it? So what are we gonna do? What's the radical step? If it means deleting Instagram, because you can't help but find yourself in the same profiles, going to the same pictures that you know you shouldn't be looking at, guys, delete the app. I promise it's not worth it. Like whatever you're going to miss on Instagram is, I promise you, not worth the enslavement that you've been feeling to that sin. Just delete it. It's worth it. It's a, it feels radical, but it's really not. And if that doesn't work, take your smartphone and make it the dumbest phone that anyone's ever seen, right? It's a smartphone. Make it so dumb. Make it like the dumbest phone. Like, guys, our settings on our phones are actually great, right? They, there's actually some settings that can make your phone pretty dumb. Like, it can, you can block the right apps. You can set the right screen time. You can give your password to a trusted roommate, right? It's, it's worth it. Make your phone dumb. And if that doesn't work, if you keep finding yourself going back to those, those same images, guys, literally go to the phone store and say, give me the phone that you give to old ladies who don't want to use the internet. Like, literally give me that phone. Like, the one that just has, like, numbers. Like, I know it's lame. I know I'm going to look like a loser, but I promise you it is better 
than what pornography is doing to your body and to your soul. Do something radical. Guys, if you, if, if for you the sexual immorality battle is with a girlfriend or boyfriend, and you can't help but take your hands off each other, you can't help but, but, but uh, find your clothes are off, again, figure out what radical step of action that you need to take. I think a great first step, as the team mentioned last week, is to have an intentional conversation about boundaries, about radical boundaries, and to ask the question, what do we have to do here to make sure we aren't falling into sexual immorality? You guys, what I'm not saying is that girlfriends and boyfriends can never touch, right? I'm not saying you can't ever touch. Like, we are made as physical humans, right? Like affection is not a bad thing. It's a way we express care for one another. That's not a bad thing. But the framework I want to give you to think through, framework that I want to give you to think through is, is what, affect, what actions are showing affection and what actions are causing arousal, Right? So I think there are plenty of ways that physical touch can actually be an, ex- an important expression of affection, right? I think you can, can hold hands. I think you can put your arms around each other. I think there, maybe even you could argue there's ways that you could kiss that are showing affection. But listen, we know when things are moving from affection to arousal, right? It's literally built into us. We know like when the dial is getting turned a little too high. And so have a serious conversation that says, hey, we want to honor God with our bodies. We understand the consequences of sex. We want to save this for marriage. What do we need to do now to set the boundary back far enough to keep ourselves away from awakening sexual arousal, the thing that that's God has designed for marriage? Have that conversation. Don't be afraid to take the radical step. And I promise whatever it is, might seem harsh, but it'll be better than the pain and heartbreak that will come from sexual sin. Second way to flee sexual sin, bring your sin into the light. Bring your sin in the light. Guys, Satan would love for you to keep your sexual sin in the dark, hidden for no one else to see, because that's where he has power. But there is power when we take what is hidden in the dark and we expose it to the light. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Because if you've never confessed your sexual sin to someone else, you are missing out on so much freedom. Guys, listen, I, I remember showing up to freshman year connection for the first time, and people started talking about their sexual sin and confessing it out loud, and I'm like, this is weird. Right, and maybe you experience that too. I'm like, this is weird, what's going on? I thought people just did that and then hit it, right? But what I saw in those friends that were confessing their sin, I began to see a freedom. I began to see a physical, like a weight coming off their shoulder. And seeing them confess, it was that that gave me the strength to confess my own hidden sin for the very first time and begin my journey towards freedom. Right, and they became my accountability partners and we started to fight sin together. Guys, find a trusted friend and bring your sin into the light. Confess to others, but also confess your sin to God. Right? This is where we should start. To bring our sin to God. Guys, he doesn't want you to continue to hurt. He wants to heal you. Run to him in prayer again and again and again and again and he will begin to give you power over your sin. Third way to flee sin Ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. Guys, so many of us are so entrapped in sexual sin that we never have the time to ask the question why. Right? Why do I continue to run to this? 
Like, what am I actually believing that this can, can give me? And oftentimes what we'll find when we start to look underneath the surface of our hearts is that it's not purely physical gratification that we're looking for, right? It's oftentimes something else. Maybe it's a deep longing to have significance. And that sexual sin makes you feel just so alive for a moment. Or maybe it's your deep desire to not be alone. And for a brief moment, you don't feel alone before it plunges you back into deeper and darker levels of loneliness and shame and regret. So investigate your heart and ask, what am I really looking for here? What am I really searching for? And then go find what you're actually searching for in Jesus. Who can actually give it to you in full? So, at the beginning, I said that I hope that we leave with a better understanding of the forgiveness and grace that we have received in Jesus. And maybe you're asking, Trent, like, where do you see grace and forgiveness in this passage? Because if I'm honest right now, I'm just, I'm seeing the consequences of my sin and I'm feeling a lot of guilt and I'm feeling a lot of shame. And maybe you're feeling more condemned right now and dirty than you are loved. Is that God's heart towards you? Look back at verse, look back at verse 19 with me. It says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. For those of us who have accepted Jesus, we have union with Christ, right? This is an amazing reality, to be united with the God of the universe despite our sin. We're no longer our own because we are with Christ and Christ is in us. But how did this happen? Don't miss it, verse 20, for you were bought at a price. God bought you so that you could be united with him. Now, here's the thing about buying something. When you go to a store and you're looking around to see what you might buy, what are you looking for? Things that have value, right? Things that you want. Things that you look at and say, I want that. How much does it cost? And this is how God sees you. He sees past all your sin, he knows all your secrets and still he says, I want them. I want you. Maybe you're sitting there hearing these words that Jesus wants you, but what you actually believe is no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He wants the people in here who have the pure relationships. He wants the people in here who have already beaten the porn addiction, but not me, at least not as I am right now. I have more sexual immorality in my life than I ever have. He wouldn't want me here. I want to end by telling a story from the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea follows the story of this man named Hosea that God calls to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Right, a woman who was, who was making a living off of selling her body to other men, who was in this dark spot, and this is who God calls Hosea to marry. And so they marry, and he brings her out of this life of prostitution, and together they have three kids. Well, over time, they have three kids, and over time, as many of us do, Gomer, his wife, began to fall back into old habits. 
back towards this previous life of sexual immorality until the point where she abandons Hosea and her family and goes back into this life of prostitution. After I've been united with her husband, she says she goes back into this life of prostitution and uniting herself with other men. After all of that, she finds herself back in that same spot in the pit that she was in to begin with. And so Hosea seeks out to the Lord, Lord, what should I do? My wife has left me back into going in back into prostitution. What should I do? And in chapter three, verse one, the Lord said to Hosea, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And don't miss this, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Hosea said, what do I do? And God said, you're not to abandon her, you are to go to her. And so that's what Hosea does. He goes to her. He goes into the streets. He goes into the dark alleys that a, a, a godly man are, is not supposed to be found in. He goes there to find his wife. And when he gets there, who knows what the state of despair must have been for Gomer. Who knows the type of pain and the shame and regret that she must have been feeling. And imagine seeing your husband who you've abandoned and, and surely thinking he can't be here for me because I've, I've left him. He can't be here for me. He wouldn't want me. But he was there for her and he came to rescue her. He came to get her. But listen, he wasn't just allowed to take her, Right? That's not how prostitution works. And prostitutes come at a cost and whoever was keeping her was not interested in losing a prophet that night. So we see in, in verse two, Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. Well, she might think that's weird, right? Like, why is he buying her? Like, he, she is his wife. Why did he have to buy her? Like that's what others do, but that's not what you do. But see, the difference is that others were paying the price to hurt her, and Hosea was paying the price to heal her. He saw her where she was as valuable and was willing to pay whatever it took to get her out of there. And he didn't wait for her to clean herself up. He went and got her where she was in the pit and was willing to do whatever he had to do to rescue her. Guys, this is how the Lord has loved us. See, we are Gomer, aren't we? We are the ones who have run away from God. We are the ones who pursued sexual immorality of every type. We are the ones who have found ourselves dirty and broken and in regret. But like Hosea, Jesus came to get us where we are right now, where you're sitting right now. He saw us in our mess he sees you in your lowest point and he says, I want them. I want you. How much do they cost? See, here's the thing is we too come at a price. Sinners cannot be united with God unless there is a payment of sinless blood. Right, that's what's required. That's the price. And Jesus looks at you and says, it's worth it. It's worth the price. And that's exactly the payment he would give 
when he went up on that cross to die the death that we deserve and pour out his sinless blood as the payment for our sin so that we could be united with him and made sinless so that we could be healed. Salt Company, Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the price. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you as a piece of junk that no one wants. He sees you as someone that he loves. He sees you as someone that is worth saving. And if we have placed our faith in him, we have been purchased. We have been healed. And we have been united with Christ. So would that help us to walk out of here tonight if we've placed our faith in Jesus, which is available to all of us, without an ounce of guilt or shame because Jesus has taken it all. We've taken his righteousness. We walk out of here in that type of freedom and we walk out of here saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you're not holding any good gifts back from me, Lord. I wanna honor you with my body. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess our sin. We confess our mess. We confess all the ways that we have failed. But Lord, thank you that you haven't left us there. God, thank you that you saw us in our mess and you came to us. You said, I want them. I want you, I want me. You were willing to pay the price for our sin. Lord, I pray, Lord, I know the guilt, the shame that I've carried before, Lord, and I know the guilt and shame is being carried in this room, Lord. Lord, we bring our guilt, we bring our burden into this room to you. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that you would help us to realize what we have in Christ. And Lord, would that burden be lifted for some, maybe for the first time, Lord, tonight. Would that burden be lifted as we accept your sacrifice and are united with you? Would you lift that burden from us, Lord, and would you give us a vision? A vision for what our life can look like. Lord, would we abandon the ways of our past? Would we flee from sexual immorality? Lord, we trust you. It's not good. We don't want it. We don't want it, Lord. Would you show us, Lord, what's good? The way that you've designed sex, Lord, is a good gift. And above all, Lord, we just seek to glorify you with our bodies. And Lord, now we want to glorify you in worship.